Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hello, howdy. Welcome back. Welcome back to the podcast. ADHD's over. Hey, maybe you haven't gotten the memo yet, but it's over. Why can I say this so confidently? Why, Roman, can you say this when you know that it's not really over, right? Well, and you've heard me say this before, if this isn't your first episode, that results like these that we wish for. And I do believe that if we're really interested in having a healthy society, right, healthy children, we all should wish for any disorder to be over. Of course, the next thought that comes is like, well, who are we to say that? And that's not true. And we can't just disappear it. And it's real and blah, 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 blah. Well, like I always say, Martin Luther King had a dream, right? I have one too. You should have one too. Mine is for ADHD to be over. And all of these results start with a declaration. It's always a declaration that has something be over. And recently, to be honest, I'm going to share this in vulnerability and authenticity here that I've had the thought to discontinue this project altogether to make a point that if we want it to be over, then we need to stop talking about it in its current form, right? So perhaps I'll morph the movement eventually, but to make a point, it's really true that, you know, when we want something to be over, in other words, it's the same as like, say, terrorism, right? We want terrorism to stop. We got to stop talking about it, stop broadcasting, stop using the word, stop it. And of course, those uh, negative forces and lower vibrations will go somewhere else to cause trouble. But that is how we stop a thing, an agreement, a term, in this case, a disorder. A little side note. So why can I confidently say that it's over? It's because I do believe that the system of ADHD, the, I'll call it the pro-disorder, pro-pharma kind of approach, that system, that business that this so-called disorder has become is crumbling. I know that because I see the crumbling on the outside, sort of on the outskirts of the neighborhood, if you will. And it's happening around depression and the uh, disproven chemical imbalance theory. Well, if it's true that depression is not caused by a chemical imbalance, even though it's been peddled as such, sold to the masses as such, in order to um, sell more medication, you can look this all up, then what other disorder might not be based on or caused by chemical imbalance? So that's what I mean. It's crumbling. The narratives are crumbling as new science is coming in, as new voices are getting louder, as new questions are being asked, as we start to call out the nakedness of the emperor, right? The emperor wears no clothes. So that's why I'm confident that it's over. It may not be over in my lifetime. I'm 52 years old. I hope to live another 35, 40 years if God, you know, God willing, universe willing. But it might not be over in this lifetime. Although I do believe that there's a major shift coming, major shift. There has to be. Now, it always gets worse and worse until those shifts happen. So brace yourselves, brace yourselves for what's coming. But the narratives are falling apart even around COVID, around depression, around ADHD. All those so-called follow the science kind of narratives are being questioned because the question is what science and who's behind it and who's funding it and who's cherry picking it. And this is the time to do so. So today's topic is called ADHD, the gateway diagnosis. 
Why did I label it that way? Because, you know, I'm a clever laborer, labeler. I went to art school. I love advertising. I love playing with, with words. Now, it's not that clever, but I think it's clever. The gateway diagnosis. Well, how gateway is often used, as you know, as you may have heard, is the gateway drug, right? For example, people say that marijuana is the gateway drug to harder drugs, right? And we also hear the term um, self-medication, kind of like if we don't medicate our children, you know, the children that have been diagnosed with ADHD, if we don't medicate them with ADHD drugs, they will later self-medicate. And of course, they'll start with, I don't know, maybe cigarettes, alcohol, marijuana, and boom, they're into harder drugs because supposedly marijuana is one of those gateway drugs. Well, I'm here to say in this episode that I'm a big believer, very big believer, that the ADHD diagnosis is a gateway diagnosis. And what do I mean by that? Now, I have the help of a wonderful article that was recently published. This is August 27, 22, in the New York Times of all papers. And this is sort of a bit of an audiobook version of me reading most of the article and then discussing some. And so if you've already read the article, this episode might be 60% boring, 40% interesting, because I'll try to add my own take on things, as I always do. If you haven't read the article, then buckle up and let's do this. This article is called, um, I believe the title was, This Teen Was Prescribed 10 Psychiatric Drugs. She's Not Alone. Increasingly anxious and depressed teens are using multiple powerful psychiatric drugs, many of them untested in adolescence or for use in tandem. This was written by Matt Richel, and again, published August 27, 22 in the New York Times. This is about a young woman named Renee Smith. And one morning in the fall of 2017, Renee, a high school freshman on Long Island, New York, could not get out of bed, overwhelmed at the prospect of going to school. In the following days, her anxiety mounted into despair. I should have been happy, she later wrote, but I cried, screamed, and begged the universe or whatever godly power to take away the pain of a thousand men that was trapped inside my head. Intervention for her depression and anxiety came not from the divine, but from the pharmaceutical industry. The following spring, a psychiatrist prescribed Prozac. The medication offered a reprieve from her suffering, but the effect dissipated, so she was prescribed an additional antidepressant, Effexor. A medication cascade had begun. During 2021, the year she graduated, she was prescribed seven drugs. These included one for seizures and migraines. She experienced neither, but the drug can also be used to stabilize mood and another to dull the side effects of the other medications, although it is used mainly for schizophrenia. She felt better some days, but deeply sad on others. Her senior yearbook photo shows her smiling broadly. But I felt terrible that day, said Renee, who is now 19 and attends a local community college. I've gotten good at wearing a mask. She had come to exemplify a medical practice common among her generation, the simultaneous use of multiple heavy-duty psychiatric drugs. Psychiatrists and other clinicians emphasize that psychiatric drugs properly prescribed can be vital in stabilizing adolescents and saving the lives of suicidal teens. But these experts caution such medications are too readily doled out, often as an easy alternative to therapy that families cannot afford or find or aren't interested in. These drugs generally intended for short-term use are sometimes prescribed for years, even though they can have severe side effects, including psychotic episodes, suicidal behavior, weight gain, and interference with reproductive development, according to a recent study published in Frontiers in Psychiatry. Moreover, many psychiatric drugs commonly prescribed to adolescents are not approved for people under 18, and they are being prescribed in combinations that have not been studied for safety or for their long-term impact on the developing brain. I just want to read this again. Just hang with me here. This is very, very common. This is the New York Times, right, reporting. This is still, I believe, mostly a credible source, or at least one that is 
shall I say, accepted by the mainstream. And we are trying to communicate to the mainstream here that there's an issue, right? Moreover, many psychiatric drugs commonly prescribed to adolescents are not approved for people under 18 by the FDA. And they are being prescribed in combinations that have not been studied for safety or for their long-term impact on the developing brain. Do you see the Russian roulette here, the experimenting, the let's just try this out kind of uh, attitude of our so-called experts? Follow the science? Well, that's pretty clear here that following this science could be very, very severely destructive to, oh my God, the lives of thousands of, of families. So Renee Smith's psychiatric records mention varying doses of at least 10 medications, some of which are not approved for treating depression in adolescents, like we just mentioned, right? Now here's the kicker. I'm just going to jump ahead before I read this. This is what stood out to me when I was reading the article. It said, halfway down the article, Mrs. Smith's diagnoses began with inattention. So that is my point of the gateway diagnosis. When she was um, in fourth grade, right? So she's nine or ten. It says that she struggled in school and her family sought the help of a psychiatrist who prescribed Focalin for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, an increasingly common diagnosis. Looking back at his own high school days in the early 1980s, her father, Kevin Smith, most likely not the filmmaker, wonders if he too had suffered from ADHD. He just zoned out, he recalled. It drove my dad nuts. And now here, I'm just going to jump ahead because he talks about the dad's uh, history there. But um, then later in eighth grade, Renee showed signs of depression. Instead of going to class, I'd go to the guidance counselor and cry for the whole period, she said. She ventured reasons. Her father's landscaping business struggled. There were challenges inside the family. She felt pressure to make it to a big-name university, which she saw as the only path to security and happiness. Without entry to a good college, she feared, I'll work in a supermarket the rest of my life. This paragraph, folks, dear listeners, sums up in a way, although it's still not detailed enough for me to, of course, say that's exactly what I'm talking about, but it is what I'm talking about, which is the environment that our children grow up in, right? Her father's business, landscaping business, was struggling. How does that translate to a, that this is eighth grade, right? She's now, what, 14? 13, 14? If your father's business is struggling and your father is, say, the main provider, right? The breadwinner. That stress, even if a father manages to sort of tap it down or hide it or deal with it, that stress that is brought home, most parents, by the way, have a hard time being with it or transforming it, you know, so the stress comes out in many ways around the dinner table or could be anger, it could be not being present, it could be even alcohol problems. Then it said there were challenges inside the family. What does that mean, right? Could be uh, uh, disconnected parents, could be infidelity, could be divorce, and so forth. And then there's the pressure to make it to a big name university. Guess where that comes from? The environment, our society, our culture, commercials, uh, friends, other parents, and so forth, right? Which, and it says, she saw as the only path to security and happiness. Well, okay, that's the narrative we've created on this planet in this, this, this current world, this society, this, this culture that we live in. The only way to security and happiness is to have a high-paying job or go to a good name, big name university, right? So here's this young being already on so many psychotics, uh, psychodrugs, as I call them. And there's all these pressures Additionally, pressing down on her psyche from the environment, how is a human being like that even supposed to function in a healthy way? It's impossible. And again, going back to this sentence that Renee's diagnosis began with inattention. So there is my point, the gateway diagnosis. This young woman, again, you can look this up for yourself. There's a list in the article. There's a list of all the medications that she was on. Grades four to nine, she was on Focalin. 
Grades 9 to 10, she was on Focalin, Prozac 10 milligram, Prozac 20 milligram. Grades 10 to 11, she was on Abilify, Effexor XR, 75, Effexor XR 150, then Prozac 10 and Prozac 20. Trintilix 5 and Trintilix 10 milligrams. Then grades 11, 12, she was on Alprazolam, Focalin XR, Lamictal, Olanzapine, Trintilix. I'm not, probably not even pronouncing them right, but you know, guess what? They don't really deserve to be pronounced right because it's just ridiculous. Then in 2021, she graduated finally, still on Focalin XR, Lamictal, Rexolti, Topamax, Trintilix. So over the years, right, it says, note, the list shows tablet and capsule sizes mentioned in Renee's records by prescription date. Some prescriptions were for multiple doses a day and some extended into the years that followed. So this is a big freaking mess and overlap of many, many powerful psychotic drugs. And this is a teenager that is already dealing with puberty, the pressures of high school, the added pressures of what's after high school, the, the societal pressure of what are you going to do next? Are you going to become secure and happy or not? Then add the family issues that, that I just talked about, right? The struggling business of the father, the, the problems in the family, the pressures, add all that up. Now throw in at times 10 powerful psychotic drugs and put all that in a blender and hit the on button. And if it isn't the wild freaking outcome to have a human being in front of you that is unpredictable, that is moody, that is, that is dealing with psychological issues that, that as a parent we have no idea because we can't go into their head. We don't know what all these drugs are doing to their head. Talking about chemical imbalance, those psychiatrists that prescribed these drugs to this young woman clearly caused the chemical imbalance by giving all those drugs. And if you've heard me say this before, you know what I'm talking about. I'm a believer. To me, it's common sense. There are always chemical imbalances in the brain because we have chemicals in the brain and depending on certain actions, reactions, events in our environment, stresses to our nervous system and so forth, there will be an imbalance, but that's a natural phenomena of the brain. It is never fully balanced. It is only fully balanced probably during meditation or flow state or sleep or any of those situations that we could scientifically, you know, hook someone up to, uh, to a machine and, and prove it. But other than that, life is a imbalanced ride and we better get used to it. And to call something is caused to... to, to run around like these these paid influenced scientists have in the past and or psychiatrists as well doctors to say that depression is due to chemical imbalance and now ADHD is due to chemical imbalance in the brain and it's all been debunked i mean the nerve come on it's crumbling like i said before it's totally crumbling it's all crumbling anyway so renee was on all these drugs throughout her high school from starting fourth grade, right? So I'm going to continue here. It says, um, you can very cogently argue that we don't have evidence about what it means to be on multiple psychotropic medications, says Lisa Cosgrove, a clinical psychologist at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. This is a generation of guinea pigs. Parents, if you have a child that's been put on any medication, whether it's for ADHD or depression or bipolar, schizophrenia, and so forth, whatever it is, please read this article in the New York Times. Follow the links to the study, studies published. Listen to our experts on our podcast, especially Peter Bregan, who talks about the dangers of these drugs given to children. And please consider that if you put your child on medication, that you are doing this for a short term as a band-aid, but not as a long term, because there is clear scientific evidence that in the long term, there are damages and there are many. This is not one out of a hundred thousand or one out of a million children. There are many children that are suffering 
But because they've been given a cocktail overlapping, you know, medications for so many years, it is now hard to pinpoint, well, which medication did what at what age and, and what influence and, and so forth. And then we just label the child where they're at. So if they're now mainly depressed, we go, oh, well, she has depression now. If they're main, mainly bipolar, oh, she's bipolar. Or if it's mainly ADHD, oh, it's ADHD, right? It is so unfair to do that to our children while they're still developing and growing at a young age. Their brains are not even done growing, developing. And they're constantly, even as adults, our brains continue to grow. It never ends because our environment influences how our brain grows. And yet we do this to four-year-olds nowadays. Anyway, getting passionate about it. All right. A study published in 2020 in the journal Pediatrics found that 40.7% of people ages 2 to 24 who were prescribed a drug for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Did you hear that? 2 to 24. I just, that blew my mind. I had it at, the, the, the youngest was like three or four. I think it was four at a time. And then I, I heard something about a three-year-old. A study published in 2020, this is two years ago, in the journal Pediatrics found that 40.7% of people ages two to 24 who were prescribed a drug for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder were also prescribed at least one other medication for, and here come these, you know, the gateway diagnosis theory, for depression, anxiety, or another mood or behavioral disorder. Guess what? If you're dealing with life in general, just growing up as a young being, plus you have stressful you know, uh, events in your environment, and now you're giving, given this strong drug, and then you're set to have depression, anxiety, behavioral disorder, well, hell yeah, of course you would be depressed, anxious, or behave in some form that's like, what we call not normal, because not only are you are you dealing with life, which is already hard, but now you're given a, a strong drug. Most of these drugs are scheduled to uh, the DEA, you know, like like crack and speed and meth. And, and this is not a conspiracy. This is not, you can look this up. I mean, that is what we're giving our children. So the study found more than 50 different psychotropic medicines prescribed in such combinations. And the review by the New York Times found that roughly half of the drugs were not approved. Get this, not approved by the DEA, I mean the FDA for use in adolescents. Although doctors have discretion to prescribe as they see fit. Hold up. So there's a little loophole. The FDA has not approved a lot of these drugs. It says half. So let me rephrase that. Half of the drugs that the New York Times researched were not approved for use in adolescents. Although, here's the loophole, doctors have discretion to prescribe as they see fit. Huh. Wow. Okay. And then still they claim neutrality, right? I've seen it happen where uh, in instances where children died based on having been prescribed too many psych psycho drugs. And doctors have called for and been given neutrality, as in like they were not responsible. But wait a minute, if you have a discretion to prescribe it as you see fit as a doctor, I'm sorry, buddy, you're, you're responsible. You are giving a adolescent a drug that's not FDA approved and because you think it still would work or could work. And then when shit hits the fan, you say, I'm not responsible. Yeah, that don't fly in my book. I'm sorry about that. Deeply sorry. Not sorry. Hashtag. So Express Scripts, a mail order pharmacy, recently reported that prescriptions of antidepressants for teenagers rose at this 38% from 15 to 19 in four years, right? Compared with 12% for adults. So 38% it rose in teenagers, the prescriptions for antidepressants, compared with only Less than a third in adults. That's insane. Prozac and Lexapro are the only medicines approved for teens with depression. According to the Food and Drug Administration, while antidepressants in general carry a black box warning about increased risk of suicide for adolescents. 
Public health officials first grew concerned about the problem of multiple medication use or polypharmacy a decade ago when it emerged among young people in foster care and low-income settings. Legislative reforms were passed to curb the practice in those settings, but it has since widened to include affluent and middle-class families. It's gone mainstream, said Julie Zito, professor of pharmacy and psychology at the University of Maryland. And again, now we're back to um, uh, when I was reading you how Renee's diagnosis began with inattention in fourth grade, right? That's, that's how it all started. So her search to feel better led her and her family to various treatments and eventually to use of multiple drug prescriptions. In 2018, in the spring of her freshman year, she visited New Horizon Counseling Center on Long Island. According to her psychiatrist's notes, which she shared with the Times, Mrs. Smith reported experiencing increased anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. She agreed to try a small dose of Prozac, 10 milligrams, once a day, together with individual therapy, the doctor wrote. New Horizon did not respond to inquiries from the Times regarding Mrs. Smith's case. In 10th grade, the same psychiatrist added a prescription for Effexor, an antidepressant that is not approved by the FDA for use in adolescents and that put teens at increased risk for suicidal behavior and hindered growth. So again, she goes to a counseling center, a psychiatrist gives her Prozac, later that same psychiatrist prescribes her Effexor, which is not approved by the FDA, right? For suicidal behavior and hindered growth, that's the risk. Not approved in adolescence. And of course, Horizon Counseling Center wouldn't comment on the New York Times inquiring about Mrs. Smith's case because, come on. I mean, the cards are on the table. Later in the year, the psychiatrist added a prescription for Abilify an antipsychotic drug that is sometimes prescribed for mood disorders, but is intended primarily for schizophrenia, which Mrs. Smith did not have. He replaced her Prozac with a different antidepressant. Despite the prescriptions, she said, she felt only periods of relief, but ultimately became depressed again. In May 2020, during the pandemic in 11th grade, Mrs. Smith saw treatment at the mental health clinic at Mather Hospital. Her original talk therapist had left New Horizon, she said, and her new one, there was often overscheduled and unavailable. She was prescribed Lamictal at Mather and then again at New Horizons. I think it's a mood stabilizer. I'm not sure, she said. Lamictal is primarily intended for adults with bipolar disorder and seizures, neither of which Mrs. Smith had been diagnosed with, although some studies have shown its effectiveness in treating other mood disorders. But the drug comes with a black box warning about dangerous skin rashes that in rare cases are life-threatening, noting the rate of serious rash is greater in pediatric patients than in adults. In December 2020, Mrs. Smith started dialectical behavior therapy, an offshoot of cognitive behavioral therapy at Hofstra University. But the treatment did not involve a psychiatrist overseeing coordinated medication. In that absence, New Horizons continued to prescribe Mrs. Smith's drugs. The drug regimen mounted. Over the course of her high school years, Mrs. Smith was prescribed 10 different psychotropic medications, not always simultaneously, but in overlapping periods, her medical records show. In 2021, the year she graduated, New Horizon was prescribing her seven, Focalin, Trintilix, Aprazolam, an anti-anxiety drug known to be addictive, Lamictal and Topamax, a combination of seizure and migraine medication that can be used to stabilize mood, Rexalti, an add-on drug for adults who have major depressive disorder, and Olanzapine, a drug used mainly for bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. Mrs. Smith, by the way, said she was told that olanzapine would dull the side effects of the other medications and help her sleep. I can't think of any disorder that would result in her being on all these classes of medications, said Dr. Mark Olfson, clinical psychiatrist at Columbia University and one of several experts whom the Times consulted about Mrs. Smith's drug regimen. They all expressed similar concerns. It's not a coherent regimen, Dr. Olfson said. But he added, the practice of overprescribing was common among doctors. When they're searching for something that makes the patient symptom-free, they create problems that can result in what is politely called pharmaceutical misadventure. I'm going to just read that again. For all of us, for all of you parents, considering medication, really let this one sink in. When they, meaning doctors, when doctors 
searching for something, when doctors are searching for something that makes the patient symptom-free, they create problems that can result in what is politely called pharmaceutical misadventure. Yeah, and since we don't have any long-term studies that these drugs, especially overlapping and mixed up, are safe and effective, even though parents are told that medications for ADHD are safe and effective, again, you got to let that sink in. We've been told that the vaccine for COVID was safe and effective. Yet I personally know people who have major health issues now, including my own mother, who had inflammation of the heart flaps after she got her second booster. I know of people who know people who've died from the vaccine. That's not called safe and effective. Maybe somewhat safe, mostly effective. The effectiveness has been debunked too. And not to stay on the COVID-19 vaccine, you could be pro or con, I don't care, but it's a fact. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. You can look this up. The same thing applies to, in our case, medication, powerful stimulant drugs given to children that are supposed to be safe and effective. And here we have psychiatrists at you know, pretty big universities saying, well, actually, when we do this to children, you know, this, could call, this is called pharmaceutical misadventure. To me, there's not a lot of responsibility in that word. Pharmaceutical companies saying, oh, it's just a misadventure. Sorry. Yeah, no. Anyway, so there's a little subheader called the rise of polypharmacy. The path toward polypharmacy often starts with drugs that are used to treat ADHD. Well, again, the gateway diagnosis, ADHD. The condition is the foundation of polypharmacy, said Dr. David Lohr, a child psychiatrist at the University of Louisville and the medical director for the Department for Community-Based Services, which oversees Kentucky's child welfare system. ADHD medications are prescribed widely and considered to be a relatively risk-free way to improve focus. But Dr. Lohr explained that when one medication doesn't resolve all the issues or when new ones crop up, Parents and doctors can be quick to add additional medications instead of relying on non-pharmacological solutions such as therapy. And ADHD drugs can have side effects including sleeplessness that doctors sometimes treat with additional prescriptions. No wonder. New psychiatric drug options began flooding onto the market in the 1980s with the introduction of second-generation antipsychotics and new classes of antidepressants known as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Another class serotonin and norepinephrine, I can never say that, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors came in the, in the 1990s. A nationwide study published in 2006 examined records of visits to doctor's offices by people younger than 20 and found a sharp rise in office visits involving the prescription of antipsychotic drugs to 1.2 million in 2002 from only 200,000 in 93. Right, So this is like nine years later, it went from 200,000 to 1.2 million prescriptions of antipsychotic drugs. This is in uh, people younger than 20. The drugs increasingly were prescribed in combinations, particularly among low-income children. Between 04 and 08, it's four years, a national study of children enrolled in Medicaid found that 85% of patients on an antipsychotic drug were also prescribed a second medication with the highest rates among disabled youngsters and those in foster care. Moreover, the meds don't work all that well, said Dr. Robert Hilt, a psychiatrist at the University of Washington. Again, this is speaking to the safe and effective, right? He's saying they're not that effective. He noted that studies have shown only a modest upside for some of the major classes of medications, including antidepressants prescribed to adolescents. Dr. Joshua Gordon, director of the National Institute of Mental Health, said that Doctors often scramble to help a kid who is in their office, but that the lack of clear evidence about what drugs work can lead to educated guesswork and prescription of multiple medications. Why kids end up on multiple medications is because we don't have the medications that are really working for them, he said. All of it suggests we need more research. And let me just say, this is coming from Dr. Joshua Gordon, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health says, 
all of it suggests, not some of it, all of it suggests we need more research. Yeah, I would agree. You know, if we don't have the science to follow, even though we're told to follow the science, and Russell Barkley and crew, uh, you know, when they created their, uh, their memo to say the debate is over, shut up, you anti-ADHD medicine, anti-people movement, including me and whoever is, is, you know, on the side of our movement, and said the debate is over. Um, yeah, I don't think so, Mr. Russell Barkley. I really don't think so because uh, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health this year says all of it suggests we need more research. Yeah, we do. I think we do. I think it's time for for the white lab coats and the psychiatrists and all the scientists that have been, you know, promoting this narrative that the science is in and it's and these drugs are safe and effective and it's the most, you know, most effective solution for ADHD. I think you need to just sit down and just get a little humble. You know, maybe maybe just be vulnerable and authentic and say, "You know what? Yeah, we do need more. We do need more research. You're right. There's been a lot of shit happening, a lot of really severe cases, really severe side effects. Um, we're kind of fucking shit up. Let's stop. Let's pause this whole fucking ADHD rampage business bullshit. Let's pause and let's get more, more you know, science, like studies done. Not just the ones funded by pharma, but let's, let's really look to help our children. That's what needs to happen. I mean, clearly, that's in my book. Continuing here. Nonetheless, many experts emphasize that the proper use of the right medications can be essential in helping to stabilize an adolescent who is clinically anxious, depressed, self-harming, suicidal, or inattentive. Let me just say here that the key word is stabilize. I do agree that in certain cases, there might be some emergencies, urgencies, where a parent or a family needs to stabilize a child so that in the background, right, running in parallel, uh, the parents can take a deep breath, sit down, formulate a plan, get some therapy going, change their environment. You know, it could take years, right? So I'm not like some of the experts I interview and some of the consultants are super anti-pharma, anti-drugs. I get that. And I can respect it. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of shady stuff that's been happening over the years and lawsuits and things that are swept under the rug that I get it. Me, I'm not anti-drugs, anti-medication, but I am medication and drugs as a last resort kind of person. And so when I hear the word stabilize, I would have to agree. And she says, medication's important. This is Stephanie Kennebec, a pediatric emergency room doctor at Cincinnati Children's Hospital who has studied therapeutic approaches to suicidal impulses. Also vital, she said, was knowing that medication has its limitations. Therapy is the cornerstone of what we try to get kids into. I can back that up. Polypharmacy became even more common after 2013 when the clinical definition of ADHD was updated and broadened. Previously, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, the standard reference for the diagnosis of thousands of medical conditions stated that an ADHD diagnosis applied if the patient exhibited some hyperactive, impulsive, or inattentive symptoms that caused impairment. Some. Hmm. How do you sum that up? That's my question. In 2013, the requirement for impairment was dropped, among other changes that together led to significantly increased diagnosis. According to an analysis in the journal JAMA, J-A-M-A, Open Network, by 2015 to uh, 16, 13.1% of adolescents ages 12 to 17 were diagnosed with ADHD, according to the journal's analysis. So when we say ADHD is overdiagnosed, Got to look at it two ways. A, I agree, meaning too many kids are labeled with this disorder that shouldn't be because really it's something else. Could be, you know, PTSD, trauma, just other things that this human being is dealing with in their childhood. But since we believe ADHD is not really real, so when we say overdiagnosed, we don't mean that some actually do have it and others don't. It's just that some might have more severe behavior that we label as ADHD and then they're diagnosed and put on medication. Others, the ones that I call overdiagnosed are the ones that are just way too young and they just haven't even, we haven't even given them a chance to step into their unique, their individual self and to 
you know, to calm down their environment so they can develop and they can become comfortable in their own skin, right? Those to me are the overdiagnosis. Just wanted to clarify that. Instances of polypharmacy do not always begin with a diagnosis of ADHD. Last summer, Jean 22, who's been identified by her middle name to protect her privacy, grew increasingly agitated and depressed before her senior year in college. Again, environment, right? Pressure, school, depression. Doesn't matter if it's ADHD, depression, or whatever we call it, right? Those, those diagnoses or those labels, those disorders, right, that we've, we've coined, they are caused by something that is not chemical and it's not the chemical imbalance that caused it it's not a faulty brain it's not genetics meaning predetermined dna right all of that has been debunked you can listen to many of our other episodes that talk about this by april of this year she was taking seven psychiatric medicines this is a different woman gene 22 right depressed before her senior year in college so now she's in college, seven psychiatric medicines. They included, oh my God, these, I just don't even want to pronounce these. Ah, they included lamotrigine, an anti-epileptic drug used for mood, hydrox, hydroxyzine, gabapentin, and propranol. Who, who names these things? I'm just going to give you a tip if you're like a pharmaceutical pill namer. Make the pill sound nice not like it's some disease in its own or it's some like chemical like little robot that crawls under your skin and fucks with your intestines name it something nice you know like at least when you hear focalin you think of focus and a lin lin sounds like a little ding a little bell at the end you know that that was a good one but these th- those ones i just read i mean come on there's another one s s Telopram, an antidepressant, mirtazapine to treat major depressive order, and lithium carbonate. Yeah, that sounds definitely like a pharmaceutical chemical cocktail for general mood disorders, although it is also used to treat bipolar disorder, which Jean has not been diagnosed with. So these psychiatrists are just throwing shit at her. They're just like like mad scientists who are like, give me the thing that ends with a zine and the patine and the granole and the lepapa, you know, and just throw it in and mix it. See what happens. Let's see. Maybe this brain will turn out. I don't know. If not, who fucking cares? Not my, it's not my kid. It's just a patient. It's just a guinea pig. Later that month, Jean confided in group counseling that she thought she might be suicidal. She was subsequently prescribed three more medications. Now, this, this Jean lady is also on 10 medications, including quetiapine, an antipsychotic that you used to treat schizophrenia, among other disorders. You know, there's going to be some people... I'm going to get some heat from this and they're going to like be like, you can't even pronounce those medications. It's pronounced this way. And I don't think anybody should be proud to correctly pronounce these medications. But anyway, that's just my opinion. Hey, I have my opinion, right? When Jean went to the pharmacy to pick up the full array of psychiatric prescriptions, the pharmacist stepped out from behind the counter. Are you sure? The pharmacist asked, according to Jean's parents. Is this all for you? Now, that's a cool pharmacist. That's somebody who has freaking morals, who has like some kind of a, I don't know if you call it ethic, like there's just something in that person who's like, that, that's just a lot of drugs for a 22 year old. And of course he may have been thinking she's buying it to sell it. You know, that's, that's a, a sad reality as well. But the way this is written here, I think he was concerned that that's, that's a little strong and that's a lot of medication for this 22 year old. Some health experts worry that in some cases, psychiatric drugs are being prescribed to dull the angst that is part of adolescence. The result is the medicalization of adolescence, Dr. Zito of the University of Maryland said. It's a run, it's, it's runaway, she said. So here's the new outlook. In October of 2021, doctors discovered cancer in Mrs. Smith's thyroid. Surgery to remove, this is, this is Renee, right, our first lady. We just finished talking about Jean. So in October of 2020, doctors discovered cancer in Renee's thyroid. Surgery to remove the tumor was scheduled for this past April. Over the winter, she found the new psychiatrist who, Mrs. Smith said, could spend more time with her than her psychiatrist at New Horizon had been able to do. Mrs. Smith said that under the care of the new psychiatrist, she began cutting back on the drug regimen she had previously been prescribed. 
By the time of her surgery, she was down to two daily psychiatric drugs, one for ADHD, one for depression, and also took an anti-anxiety pill once a week or so when symptoms flared. So what's interesting here is that these are two psychiatrists, right? So, you know, in other words, she now has a different psychiatrist somewhere else. And you could say the same kind of expert in the same field, right? I would hope that most psychiatrists you meet have been similarly trained. And, you know, because if not, then we really got to look into this. We can't just say, oh, no, oh, every psychiatrist is way different. And especially when it comes to prescribing drugs, right? So she's with a new guy. I don't know if it's a guy, but a new psychiatrist. And he takes her from 10 meds down to two. Or sounds like two or three. Well, okay. So one of them, one of the two, you could say is off. I don't know. I mean, is it 10 or two? Well, either, uh, excuse me here, something dropped. Either 10 is too many or two isn't enough. And maybe there's a th third psychiatrist that comes in and says five is good, right? But do you see the confusion and the misalignment that I'm pointing to in, in this field of medicine or this field of science. And we are supposed to, as parents, to just follow the signs or trust the psychiatrist or trust the pharmaceutical companies that the meds are safe and effective. I'm sorry, but um, that's not where trust is due. I think, first of all, trust is due in our children. Second of all, in our own intuition, our gut feeling. And third of all, in the research we do before trusting anyone involved in the current narrative around, in this case, ADHD. So anyway, Renee said that under the care of her new psychiatrist, she began cutting back on the drug regimen she had previously been prescribed. By the time of her surgery, I already read that, Roman, move on, come on. Her new psychiatrist told her that medications could only do so much. They help with irrational stress and irrational depression. Renee recalled the new doctor telling her that taking antidepressants isn't going to make you less sad if someone you care about dies. The thyroid surgery in April was a success. By midsummer, Renee said she felt happier more often. I do think the medication is working, she said, but she also credited internal work, self-reflection, and the cancer diagnosis. It opened my eyes, she said. The things you think are so important just kind of dissipate. Now look, I'm no doctor. I'm no scientist, but I don't think we can discard also the possibility that her cancer might have been triggered by or caused by all these drugs. We don't know. Nobody mentions that in this article. That's not what this article was about. But who are we to gamble, right, with, with a young person like that, with their health, with so many chemicals in their body? And then suddenly this young woman has cancer in the thyroid. Anyway, I'm not a doctor or a scientist. I'm just throwing it out there. We should not discard that, right? So her definition, Renee's definition of success has changed too. Whereas she had once thought about being a doctor or a lawyer, oh, being a doctor, that's cute, or a lawyer or things like that, she said now she works in a plant nursery and is applying to a four-year college with a focus on environmental and wildlife sciences. That's just great. And here's why. And I'm just going to finish the article here. I like working with my hands, Renee said. I don't want to work at a desk, and that's what I thought I should be doing. She added, I'm not the same person that I was a year ago. Good for her. That's amazing. And you know why I say this? First of all, cancer surgery was a success. She's getting off of most of her meds. That's amazing. But what's the most amazing is that, and this obviously she says was mostly due to the cancer diagnosis, right? When you have this sort of big life event where you're threatened with death, you wake up, you don't take things so seriously. And what I'm getting here is that society had conditioned her, right? As you heard me read in, earlier in the article where she thought the only way to security and happiness was to go to a big name college and to get a big, you know, fancy job and make a lot of money, right? That was her sort of conditioning that she grew up in, inside of. And now she says, my definition of success has changed. Where once I thought I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer, 
And when she says things like that, you know, you can throw in whatever high paying jobs or career ladder climbers, right? She says she now works in a plant nursery and she wants to get a degree to focus on environmental and wildlife sciences. She has switched to the natural world. She has realized that that gives her more pleasure, that that makes her feel good in life, that maybe that's security and happiness to find something that is fulfilling to us, not because we think it leads to security and happiness, but because actually it brings us happiness. And when we're happy, we have everything we need, we attract everything we need, and then we feel secure, we feel loved, we feel fulfilled, right? Joyful, inspired, and so forth. So really, really, really cool, great article. It's in the New York Times. Again, uh, this was in August, uh, on August 27th, 22, uh, written by Matt Rich Richtel, R-I-C-H-T-E-L, and it's called, This Teen Was Prescribed 10 Psychiatric Drugs, She's Not Alone. And the story mostly was about Renee Smith and later also about a young woman named Jen, both dealing with similar circumstances. want to wrap this up and, um, you know, again, just point out that the gateway diagnosis of ADHD really is a dangerous one because once a child has been labeled with such a disorder like ADHD, it is very common that if a medication doesn't work, you know, that psychiatrists will prescribe other medications because suddenly um, this young being cannot sleep well or this young being feels depressed or has mood swings, strong emotions, right, unpredictable, or suppressed becomes what they call oppositionally defiant, right, ODD. So it is the next step for any psychiatrist, and we've heard many in this story, to go on this pharmaceutical adventure, right? To say, oh, well, let's throw in a second, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth. And that's why I wanted to point this out to parents, that an ADHD diagnosis doesn't have to be a gateway diagnosis. If you, the parents, you do the research, you listen to experts on both sides. You read some of the studies. You really, really honor and listen to your child's intuition as well as your own. Let even common sense, forget for a second intuition, right? For a lot of people, and it used to be for me and still is sometimes, it's kind of a untangible, you can't really grasp it, grab it. Sometimes you're like, not sure, is this my intuition? Am I just worried or, you know? my feelings or emotions, but let's just look at common sense, really common sense. When you read some of these studies, when you listen to some of the experts that we've interviewed that are not the mainstream experts, that are experts that do not get funding from pharmaceutical companies because they do not promote pharmaceutical drugs as the most effective treatment to ADHD or other disorders, those experts who are not influenced right? Conflict of interest. They're not influenced by pharmaceutical companies. Listen to them. Don't let the mainstream narrative tell you that they're all anti-vaxxers or all conspiracy theorists or anti-this, anti-that. Yeah, well, you, you, I'm anti, you know, medication as first resort. I'm not anti it as a last resort or a temporary relief in certain instances, but yes, I'm anti-medication as a first resort. Medications like that, that powerful, we're not meant to be band-aids. We're not meant to, sorry, we're not meant to be long-term and, and they were not meant to be casually given. These very strong medications are meant to be in the case of emergencies or urgencies. But not in most cases with our children once we take them out of the school environment, there's no emergency. There's no urgency to have a, a child sit still. That mostly applies to the classroom. And that's most mostly applies to large classrooms and teachers who just cannot do their job, unfortunately, in the public school system. When certain children have these, these uh, uh, you know, behaviors, I don't call them symptoms, behaviors. But when you take the same children out of that environment and you put them in an environment that suits their nervous system, that suits their individuality, there is no ADHD. There is no symptom or 
disorder there. So therefore, why go in now and label them with a disempowering label and give them these strong drugs that have not been researched long term. There's no results that we have in the long term overlap of some of these drugs. And, and they're not safe and effective as touted out there in the mainstream narrative. And we have experts that simply act as if they're God and they should be trusted. Trust the science. Trust me. If you question me, then you question science. Yeah, well, yes, we are. We want to question it because we, we're not satisfied with A, your attitude, your God behavior, and also your reckless uh, prescribing of these strong drugs to our children, you damn right we got some questions. And we're going to question the science until we feel like we know both sides and that we feel like we have enough information so we can trust our intuition and we can take care of our families and we can help our children unfold, grow up and become healthy adults that are not labeled with a disempowering label that that affects their self-confidence and their self-worth, which we're already struggling with as a regular human being. We all deal with, I'm not good enough, or I don't matter, or I'm not worth anything. I'm, you know, we're already, all of us are dealing with that. So now add another label, a disorder label on top of that for your little one, your young one. Yeah, they're going to struggle with that. And that is not for the good of our children to label them with a disorder. That is literally just a shorthand between doctors and scientists so they can throw around their labels of disorders and their symptoms and they can prescribe and and go talk about it and feel good about themselves like they're creating some kind of legacy of helping people and in fact a lot of them are destroying lives and it's time that it stops. It's time that we call it out for what it is, that the emperor wears no clothes. We can see through it. You can dance around and tell us it's the right thing to do, not to question you, but no, we're going to keep questioning you because a lot of, a lot of wreckage out there has been caused by people who said, don't question me, trust the science. Well, that's changing. That's why it's crumbling and that's why ADHD is over, or you could say, is slowly starting to be over. Hey, thanks for listening to this podcast, ADHD, The Gateway Diagnosis. I really appreciate your time, your attention, as I always say, is the most valuable commodity that you possess. So give it carefully, wisely. And if you've given it to us, to me here during this episode and other episodes, we are so grateful for your attention. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Please spread the news. Go to our website, ADHDsover.com. You can download the free ADHD Diagnosis Survival Guide. Um, We heard there was some issues with it. If so, just send us a quick email saying that you're having trouble downloading it. Um, I can email it to you personally. Uh, You can reach out to us if you'd like to be a guest on the show. Tell your story. If you're a sponsor interested in sponsoring one or more of our episodes, uh, we're always open to discuss partnerships as well as we're increasing our listenership weekly. And I'm just so thankful to all of you in all corners of this world for tuning in. You know, it means so much to, for me to look every week and see somebody in Sweden, somebody in Kenya, in India, in Canada, in Mexico, in, in you know, sometimes countries that I honestly, I don't know every country in the world. I look at them like, I've never heard of that country. And I look it up, I'm like, oh my God, there's a soul down there in this little country in the Middle East that tuned in because they were interested to hear what we have to say about ADHD. And it just warms my heart. It just gave me goosebumps. I really, I appreciate you, every single one of you. Thank you so much. Thanks to all our collaborators, supporters, consultants. The inspiration to for this project came from so many of you, auth, early authors, people who pointed us in this direction Oh my God, I mean, I will never turn around here and I will always look back and go like, I'm so glad I went on this path and still I'm on this path and just thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now, go be present with your family, love your children, have a magical day and keep questioning when it's something doesn't feel right, just keep questioning. You have the right, the human right to question anyone or anything if you're not satisfied. That's how we get to the, the real answers and the truth. Love you. Until next time. Bye-bye.